Hey, good morning, everybody. How are y'all? My name's Weston. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to echo some of the things that Jason said earlier in welcoming you today. We are really appreciative that you are taking some time on your Sunday morning to spend time with us, and today we are picking up in a series on the book of Acts that we have been in for some time, but we've taken a little detour over the last two or three weeks or so, and so if you have your Bible this morning, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 13, and we're going to pick up there in just a moment. I want to talk today about the way that we deliver the truth of the gospel to our context, to the place where we live, to the place where we are, to the place where we work, Um, because I, I think we have an especially unique challenge living here in northwest Louisiana, and it's a unique challenge even within the concept of America, and it's a challenge that relates to delivering the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the challenge is this, most people around here think they already know it, right? Most people around here think that they already know it, more so than almost any other part of the country, we live in a place where it's actually socially expeditious for you to claim to be a Christian. And if you've ever lived anywhere else, you know that the opposite is true most other places outside the South. If you've lived in the Northwest, the Northeast, you know that it's more socially expeditious in those places to not claim to be a Christian. And, and so we live in a unique place in that regard. Um, just recently, uh, the Barna Group, which is uh, this firm that does statistical research about the church and the culture, they actually found last year that Shreveport, Louisiana is the least post-Christian place in America. Shreveport is the least post-Christian city in America. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean? Maybe the, the best thing we can do is talk first about what it means to be post-Christian, and then we can talk about what it means to be the least post-Christian. Um, Europe is a great example of this. Um, at one time, most of the countries in Europe uh, were thoroughly Christianized in terms of their culture. Um, most people would have said that Europe was a Christian place in that the predominant worldview was... Um, and not just personally, but also politically, was that there was a God, that it was the Christian understanding of God, that this was a God who had sent his son Jesus to die on a cross, and the church, as it were, held a primary place of importance and power within the culture. And in fact, a term that was often used for these places was the term Christendom. It was kind of a compound word. It was kind of a combination of the word Christian and the word kingdom, Christendom. And so the idea was that there was kind of this uh, socio-political Christendom, a place that was shaped seemingly and formed by the church and by Christian values. And so whenever Spain or France or England would take over some territory... Um, as they were wont to do, they would always like bring the church or bring their Christian culture 
with them. And, and the way that they would often go about this is they would, they would just come into a place and take it over by military force. And then what would they do? They would actually force people to claim Christ. They would actually force people to claim Jesus. And often it was so extreme that they would say either convert or die. Those were your options. And so today we know that that's just colonialism. But, but on some level they viewed it as expanding the kingdom of God on earth. They, they had this warped view that this is somehow expanding the church. And, and so often in most of these places, the church and the state were one. You might have a, a king or a queen. You might have a monarchy. But the church was a prominent power player. And in many cases, the king or the queen was the head of the church as well. And so um, it created a situation that was ripe for abuse. It was a situation that was ripe for spiritual manipulation. In many places, um, the church was often the primary landowner. The church was the primary um, uh, lender of money to people as well. And so um, there was a great deal of persecution that people faced under the arm of oppression that came from these Christian, using quotey fingers, Christian nations. And so for our founding fathers, some of this was the persecution that they were escaping in Europe. And it's part of the reason why this whole separation of church and state thing became such a core American value was because they saw the manipulation and the abuses that came from those things being one. And even today we see the lingering effects of colonialism around the world of nations trying to expand through force and through military might and through power trying to somehow expand the kingdom of Jesus. If you've ever been to Africa or places like that that have been influenced by European nations, there is this unbelievable thing that happens and and that is that you will spend time with common everyday people, laborers, you'll spend time with them doing their work and you will see that in all ways they model the characteristics of their particular indigenous culture. They wear the clothing of their culture, they eat the food of their culture, they, they do things the way that their ancestors have done them for centuries and, and then when Sunday comes and they go to church, you'll see these Africans come out of the bush wearing suits and ties. And it's the most remarkable thing, but it's because of the presence and the influence of these Christendom nations. But over the last hundred years, remember we're talking about what does it mean to be post-Christian. Over the last hundred years, Europe has become increasingly post-Christian. They have, to some extent, moved past the influence and the power, both politically and socially, of the church. And, and so in most European countries today, you can't really say 
that they are shaped and formed anymore by uh, a Christian worldview or a view of God as supreme or God is the one who we should be following by giving our hearts and our lives to Jesus Christ. Um, in, In most places in Europe, that isn't the case anymore. France is a great example. At one time, France was one of the most devoutly Christian nations. And, and by the way, when, when this stuff gets measured, what are people measuring, right? Because we can't really measure people's hearts, but what can we look at? We can go, well, how often do they go to church? And how often do they read the Bible? And, and do they seem to live by some of those values? It's, it's mainly external things that people are looking at. And, and so that's kind of what we're talking about when we say it was a thoroughly Christian place. People were participating in religious rituals. They were participating in kind of the pomp and circumstance of life in the church, and they would have said, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. So at one point, France was a devoutly Christian place in that sense, um, and yet today, less than 10% of the population even attends church. But what's fascinating is, like 60-something percent of the population would still claim to be Christian, and yet 10%, less than 10% of the population attends church. And so there's this amazing thing that's happened. It's like you still have the ghost of Christendom present in those places today. You still have people who claim some kind of an affiliation with that past. My parents were this, my grandparents were this, this is kind of our heritage, this is how I grew up. But yet, when it actually comes to truly following Jesus, when it actually comes to trying to be obedient to him and his will, um, that's not what's happening anymore. We've moved past that in some extent. We're, we're post-Christian. And, and so it's, it's no different on some level than somebody, um, you know, who is Jewish. They would say they are Jewish and yet they don't embrace any of the religious implications of Judaism. They're saying my family heritage is this and my history is rooted in Judaism, but I don't practice any of that and maybe I don't even believe in God at all, but yet I'm Jewish and, and yet, hopefully you see kind of the irony in that, in that Judaism, in its very core in the Bible, is the people of God, right? God's people sent with his purposes and his intentions. And yet today you might have people who say, I am that, but I, you know, I don't believe any of that stuff. Isn't that incredible? So the same thing that's happening in Europe is happening across America as well. And America is becoming an increasingly post-Christian place. We have the interesting distinction, however, of living in the least post-Christian place in America, according to Barna. And so with that in mind, I just want to talk a little bit this morning about maybe what does that mean for us For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who do realize that there are scores of lost people in our very midst, that even though we live in like this least post-Christian place, and even though we do live in this place where there are hundreds of churches just all around, like if you just start counting churches, you will run out of fingers very quickly. Um, And yet... There are all of these things in our cities, in the world around us, that stand in stark contrast to the church that we find in the New Testament, and the joy and the beauty of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, and so a question that I've been asking for several years now is that if Shreve Fort Bossier, if, if this is such a thoroughly Christian place, 
then why is the gospel of Jesus not having more of a tangible impact on the place where we live? Like, why is it, for example, that Shreveport has, like, double the poverty rate of of the national average? Why is it that we have such a high crime rate and such a high murder rate? Why is it that there are so many children in the foster care system. Why, like, so, so these are big, broken things in our world today, and, and we have to be honest in saying that the gospel of Jesus is, is not just good news for after we die. It's not just good news for down the road so that one day we can go to heaven. It also has direct bearing and impact on the here and now. And the question we're asking today is, so, so what, do we, what do we do with that in this place where we live We have to ask, though, in the midst of this, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, what, is, what does that even mean? When we talk about a place being Christian, we talk about a city being Christian, when we talk about people being Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to you to be a Christian? I just want to take a, a biblical approach to this and just knock some things off the list real quick. Um, so you are not a Christian because you go to church. You're not a Christian because you read the Bible. You're not a Christian because your parents were Christians. You're not a Christian because you pray. You're not a Christian because you're guided by biblical moral principles. You're not a Christian because you listen to K-Love or because you went to see God's Not Dead 2, which t- took an extra level of commitment to see the second one. Uh, you're not a Christian because you serve those who are less fortunate. Uh, You're not a Christian because you tithe to your church. You're not a Christian because you take communion. You're not a Christian because you have Bible verses hanging on the walls of your home. You're not a Christian because you know the gospel message. And, And here, probably most controversially, you're not a Christian simply because you believe there's a God. Now, all of those things are incredible things. All of those things are great things. And yet, none of those things in and of themselves are salvific. None of those things save. None of those things change your eternity. None of those things come in and indwell your heart and your life and change you from the inside out. I think we can easily say that if you are a Christian, then you do all of those things, except maybe the God's not dead too part. But what does it mean? What does it mean... To be a Christian, well, the word itself means Christ follower, doesn't it? It means on, on some level, I'm not just espousing something, I'm not just claiming something, I'm actually actively following something. And to be a Christ follower, according to the Bible, means that you have trusted Jesus in faith as your Savior. You don't just claim Him, you, you are actually placing your hope in him. Like your future is in Christ. If there's any good that's going to come in your life and in your future, it's going to be because of Jesus. It's not going to be because of you or, or your abilities or your talents or your gifts. It's going to be because Jesus died on a cross to reconcile you to a holy and perfect God. And the fruit 
of having placed your trust and your faith in Christ, the fruit of that is that you're seeking now to follow him, to trust him in all things, to be obedient to his word, to love other people in the way that he has loved you. And so while all of those things that I mentioned earlier are good things and are true things, none of them are actually indicative of faith. What's truly indicative of faith is our willingness to actually follow Jesus and be obedient to his word. Not just to read his word, right? But to do his word. Don't be hearers only and so deceive yourselves. Do what his word says. James, the brother of Jesus, dedicates a significant part of his New Testament book to this very idea. What is real faith? What does it really mean to place your faith in Christ? And his conclusion is this, is that what you do, the fruit of your life, the fruit of being obedient to Christ, is a far more accurate indicator of faith than what you simply claim. And he makes that outrageous statement that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And what is he saying there? He's saying if there is no fruit that comes from you placing your trust and faith in Christ, if there's nothing that comes from you somehow seeking to follow Jesus with your life, then what you're claiming is not real. Like you're deluding yourself or you're lying to yourself or you're just trying to identify something if, with something if you think it's It's going to benefit you in some way, but he's saying that real faith is not just what you say, it's what you do because of who you are following. So it's not just being a good person, right? It's it's being someone who's shaped and formed by Christ. And so he goes on and on about this idea that You can say you're a Christian all day long, but in many respects, that's not a title that you can just self-impose. It's not a title you can just give yourself because the proof of faith is ultimately the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of God indwelling your life and the subsequent fruit of God's indwelling presence. So what does that have to do with the book of Acts? Well, the delivery of the truth of the gospel is core to the story of the book of Acts. It's at the center of it. Acts is the story of men and women who went with the truth of Jesus to the world, not just a truth, not just their personal truth, but the truth, the truth. Like truth in its like traditional sense. Like not in, in this modern sense where you can have truth and you can have truth and you can have truth and you can have truth. But no, this, this idea that, no, this is the truth. This is what is. This is what's real. This is what is true. And this is what the church is sent with. But they also faced a big challenge because initially... Who are they trying to communicate this truth to? The Jews. They were trying to communicate this truth of the risen Savior to people who thought they already knew God, right? To people who were their peers, people who had grown up the same way that they had grown up, people who were deeply ingrained in the religious system, who were deeply involved in all of the rituals that went along 
with Judaism. These were the people who the early apostles and the early church were seeking to declare the message of the gospel to. And so it's like, how do you tell the truth to people who think they already know the truth? How do you tell people who think they already know the truth that they don't know the truth? That's an interesting problem, isn't it? Let's go to Acts 13, and we're going to begin in verse 14. Uh, Paul and Barnabas at this point have been sent out with the message of the gospel from the church in Antioch in Syria. And there's a lot of things that have transpired um, up to this point in the book of Acts. This is the point where the book starts to turn and from focusing um, in a broad sense on the development and formation of the early church, it takes a turn to now focusing primarily on the story of Paul and Paul's missionary journeys. And so we pick up today with Paul and his associate Barnabas, and they are in a city called Pisidian Antioch. Now, there are many cities named Antioch that uh, were around that part of the world at the time. So today we're not talking about Antioch and Syria, which is where they were sent out from. We're talking about another city called Pisidian Antioch. And so let's pick up in verse 14. It says, From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. And standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of our people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power he led them out of that country and for about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan giving their land to his people as their inheritance and all this took about 450 years and and so quick recap here story of Acts Christianity has now expanded from Jerusalem, as we just talked about. And and a big part of the reason why is not only because Jesus has sent them as his witnesses, but also persecution has begun, and it's come in full force. And so we get the sense that the death of Stephen, that we saw several chapters earlier, that that has kind of woken people up to this idea that we need to get out of here, and we need to spread and scatter And so, uh, also at this point, James, the brother of John, has been killed. Um, Peter has been imprisoned on a few occasions. He was most recently kind of miraculously released from prison. We saw that a few weeks ago. Um, Also, Herod Agrippa has died, and he was beginning to persecute the church as well. And um, so, all this brings us up to this point in the book of Acts. And so we pick up today with Paul standing up in this local synagogue, in this local church in Pisidian Antioch, and declaring the gospel. But he does it in this long, drawn-out way. And he does it in the same way that Stephen did a few chapters earlier, that Peter did towards the beginning of the book of Acts. And, and, and here's, it's interesting, what he does is, rather than just going, hey, let me tell you about Jesus, he begins by like explaining the whole history of the nation of Israel. And, and he takes a lot of time to do that. And in fact, you could almost say that he spends more time explaining something people already know 
explaining the history of their nation and everything that God has done. He, he spends almost more time explaining that to them than he does about explaining Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And in many ways, he's facing the same challenge that I was talking about earlier, the same challenge that we face. These are people who believe in God. These are people who trust God. Notice that he began um, his, his, his whole exhortation to them by kind of appealing to them as people who already know God or who maybe already fear God in some sense. And so as we pick up today with him declaring this message, we see that he's trying to connect the dots for people. The same God that you trust, the same God that you believe in, the same God that you fear, the same God uh, that you've been making sacrifice to, that same God for centuries now has been declaring that he would send a savior. He's been declaring that he would send the Messiah. And part, part of uh, Paul's point here is that look how faithful God has been to us over the years. Right? He called us out to be his people. Even when we were enslaved in the nation of Egypt, he sent that guy Moses right, to appeal to Pharaoh. Through God's power, he released us from the nation of Egypt. He's brought us to where we are today. God is the one who has done all of this. And now... He's done something else. He's now fulfilled the promise that he made to our ancestors by sending his son, Jesus. And so Paul goes through all of this. Look at verse 38. He says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Like, do you catch that? That's huge. Everyone is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So Jesus has done something now for everyone who believes that they could not have obtained under the law of Moses. And this is the real difference of the gospel. You are set free. If your hope, if your trust, if your faith is in Christ, you are set free from every sin, past, present, and future. You don't have to sacrifice more animals every time you mess up. Instead, now Jesus is this ultimate atoning sacrifice for you. And so what happens is the people are intrigued by Paul's message. They don't reject him immediately. Um, There aren't like mass conversions or anything like this, but there are some Jews, it says, and some Jewish converts who follow Paul and Barnabas and who fervently want to learn more about what he's talking about. But what happens is over the course of the next week, they get invited back to speak at the synagogue again. Over the course of the week, this fervor in the city begins to grow. And so the next Sabbath, they come to the synagogue and it's like the whole city has turned out now to hear what Paul has to say. And, and, and this takes an interesting turn. Look at verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, 
Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So isn't this fascinating? The Jews, who were initially receptive, they were initially intrigued about what Paul and Barnabas were saying. They turn against them when they see the whole city has come out to hear. And in fact, it says the Jews were filled with jealousy. Like, what were they jealous about? Most, most scholars seem to agree that the real point of contention here, the real reason why they were jealous was not just simply because the city came out, but because who came out to hear? Gentiles. That Gentiles who are not Jewish are, are flocking to the synagogue to hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say, that, that there's like this commotion, not just among the Jewish community, but also a commotion from this Gentile community. And, and here's potentially what part of the issue is here. Paul is not trying to convert Gentiles to Judaism. That's not what he's doing, is he? He's not proclaiming and declaring the glories of becoming Jewish. He's trying to convert people to faith in Christ. He's trying to show people the beauty and the majesty and the glory of who Jesus is And what Jesus has done. So he's not trying to bring them into the Jewish church as it were. What he's really doing is is appealing to them to trust Jesus for salvation. And this again is at the heart of our challenge. Paul is not trying to indoctrinate people into some kind of established religious system. He wasn't trying to get them to go to church or to bow to church leadership or to take up the sacraments or to get baptized or any of those things. That's not a part of his message at this point. He's not trying to get them to become a part of like the the law of Moses and the Jewish sacrificial system. He's not doing any of those things. He's simply proclaiming Christ and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he's telling them is this is our hope. This religious system is not our hope. The law is not our hope. What happens in this synagogue in and of itself is not our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. He is our Savior. He's our future. And so this creates a huge challenge. And so in this least post-Christian area in America, I think our challenge is not to just compel people to go to church, not just to push people to take part in church rituals. Our challenge is not to just try to get people to espouse morally upright beliefs. No, I think that's pretty easy around here, actually. Many people already do those things on some level. I think there's a much more difficult and far more important task, and that is to appeal to people to trust in Jesus Christ. Alone. To appeal to people to trust in Christ. Alone. Not in ourselves, 
not in our government, not in our religious structures, not in our churches, not in our pastors, but in Christ alone. To appeal to people in such a way that says there is no hope except through Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. We have no future except through Christ. Jesus. This was the message of the apostles. We have said this over and over again throughout the book of Acts. Trusting in Jesus Christ Placing your faith in him, placing your hope in him, being filled with his Holy Spirit, and then being obedient to his will and his call. Guys, this is the story of the early church. And this is our challenge as well. Many of us are guilty with our friends and our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers and ourselves of thinking, well, they go to church. So they're good. There are people who call this part of the country, the South, reached. And yet for many, the evidence is clear that while there may be an appearance of godliness, while there may be an appearance of faith, while there may be participation in religious activity, there isn't the evidence of real faith, which James says is the fruit of obedience. It's the fruit of placing one's faith in Christ. But, but you might be going, well, is that even my job? Like, can I even do that? Has God actually sent me to compel people to follow Jesus? And, and you might ask, isn't that God's work? And the answer is yes and no. Um, you know, God, God is the one who saves. I, I've never saved anybody. You've never saved anybody. God is the only one who has power to save. He is the only one who's capable of doing that. And and certainly scripture says in the gospel of John that no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. And yet I would argue that the Father draws people in a variety of ways. That the Father uses his power in a variety of methods and that he often chooses to use us in that process. In other words, God wants to use you, but not just you, the you that is submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. God wants to use you submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to declare the gospel, to demonstrate the gospel, and to so compel the people that he has sent you to, to place their trust and their faith in Christ alone. And so our question today is, how do we do that? How should we be going about that? So in psychology, there's this thing called reactance theory. And and in a nutshell, reactance theory says that no one wants to be told what to do or how to live. Do you all find that to be true? How, How many of you want to be told what to do? How many of you want to be told how you should be living your life? Well, nobody wants to do that. What do you guys do when Mormons come to your door? Does that excite you? Right? Jehovah's Witnesses? Anybody? 
How many are just really looking forward, hoping that they have a word of wisdom for you? Because you're just lost. You're just looking for a way to live your life differently. Maybe they've got something, some little nugget that you can seize on and start doing things differently. No, none of us think that way. When somebody starts sharing something about, you, about their life with you at work and telling you, man, I made this change and you really need to do it as well. Many of us are polite, but secretly we're thinking, don't tell me what to do, Right? When I was in college, uh, there was this burrito place on, the, on campus, and um, it was incredible. At least it seemed, it seemed that way at the time. And so um, this unfortunate thing happened, which was me and some of my friends started going to the burrito place like every day for lunch. And it was like a contest. We called it Burrito Club. And it was almost like a contest to see who could uh, build and consume the biggest burrito every time. And, and so after a couple of years of this, I got out of college, and I was about 50 pounds heavier than I had been in high school. Anybody else have that experience in college, by the way? Yeah, about 50 pounds more than when you went in. And, and so for years now, I've been trying on some level to get back down to what I weighed in, in high school. And, and this finally happened, actually, several years ago when I stopped eating a ton of carbohydrates. So, so I tried working out, I tried running, I tried, you know, all these different things. And then a few years ago, we started, or uh, stopped eating carbs, and the difference was astounding. Like, I immediately felt better, I dropped a ton of weight, um, I really didn't have to like work out a lot for that to happen. And so because of the incredible experience that I had had, I, I suddenly became incredibly evangelical about a low carb diet. I started like imposing that on people. Um, I started being incredibly judgmental of what people were eating. I quit drinking soda. I quit eating bread and pasta. I quit eating a ton of sugar. And life was great for me. And, and yet suddenly I like adopted this air of diet superiority. Like suddenly I wanted to be real critical about what other people were mindlessly eating and drinking. And, and I'm forgetting in the midst that months prior to that, I was doing the exact same thing, right? But what I found was that no matter how much I mocked, no matter how much I verbally criticized what people were doing, no matter how much I told them what they should do or that there was a better way, most people, get this, didn't want me to tell them how to live their life. Now, that said, there were people who were deeply interested but they weren't the ones who I had criticized or the ones who I would talked down to as they were finishing off a stack of pancakes. They weren't the ones who I had tried to, in some way to compel or to force to think this way and to eat this way. The people who were truly interested were the ones who had simply seen the physical change in my life. Right? They, these were people who maybe I hadn't seen in a few months. And they go, whoa. Because like, seriously, I lost... 30 to 50 pounds over the course of a, a couple of years. And so maybe they hadn't seen me while they go, oh my gosh, what are you, what are you doing? Right? They were the ones who were really interested because they had seen the difference that this had made in my life. And they came to me going, how'd you do this? And, um, you know, I know people who espouse certain diets or who are trying to sell certain diet products on Facebook to me, and 
the problem with some of those is that it's not compelling because that person does not look any different. Maybe you've experienced that. So there's nothing about it to me that makes me look at it and go, oh, maybe I need to do that because that person looks dramatically different. I was reading in uh, Psychology Today and uh, reading on this issue of reactance theory, and it says that research in observational learning in conjunction with an understanding of reactance theory suggests that while people will resist unsolicited advice and instruction, they will follow the behaviors of others, especially when they appear to be good and reinforcing outcomes from these behaviors. So so you catch that? People don't want to be told what they should do, but they do want to follow behaviors that appear to be good, and they want to follow behaviors that seem to reinforce positive outcomes. And this sounds a lot to me like 1 Peter 3.15, which says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Let me me read that again. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. What Peter's teaching us here, guys, is that if we have truly stepped into this Christ life, if the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us, if there is the fruit of obedience, we know the fruit of the Spirit from Scripture, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, all, we can go down that list. If those things are present in your life, Peter's suggesting to us that here's what's going to happen. Like, people are going to come to you. Not because you've told them what to do. Not simply because you've told them how to live your life. But because they have looked at your life. And they have seen the difference that this makes. It's almost like you're not you anymore. It's almost like you've been like, I don't know, born again. Right? And and that change, Scripture suggests, that there's this process called sanctification. Like, that change should become more and more and more apparent in your life. That it's this process of being formed into the image of Christ. So part of the idea here is that we can't just compel people to do something. We can't just force people to do something. And we can't just, you know, make these blanket statements that are kind of confrontational with people. But instead, we are to approach people with gentleness and respect. And what are we supposed to do here? We're, according to Peter, we're simply supposed to be a witness to what has happened within us, right? Now, if you remember, that's the core idea of the book of Acts. Jesus said, I am sending you as my witnesses, not just as people who have been taught how to regurgitate 
a spiel about what Jesus has done. He says, I am sending you as people who have seen this and who have been changed by this. And I am sending you to tell others not what they should do, but what you have experienced. And those are two totally different things, aren't they? To tell people what they should do and to tell people what you've experienced. One of those seems incredibly confrontational. The other is simply a response to what's happening externally in your life. And if this fruit of the Spirit stuff, if that stuff is present, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, hopefully we all realize that that's like the opposite of what most people experience, right? That's like the opposite of what most people live in. Most people are walking in anxiousness and fear and worry and doubt and a lack of joy and depression. I mean, these are the things that are pervading our world today. And, and what scripture says is that the perfect love of God drives out that stuff. And so if you're somebody where the perfect love of God has come into and dwell through the Holy Spirit, and if you're somebody who is moving forward and giving more and more and more of yourself over to him, then what should be coming out, James says, is this stuff. And it's deeply appealing. It's deeply compelling. You ever drive down the interstate and even as a Christian, see one of those Christian billboards that says something like, you're going to hell, and then in small print, trust Jesus, or, you know, or something. You ever see those and just go, oh, man. Is that good news? I don't know. What the New Testament seems to suggest to us is that the greatest news is our lives lived in connection with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, coupled with the actual proclaimed gospel of Jesus. That, that together, that together when those things unite, and there's not just I'm a kind person, but there's also the beauty and the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that when we can bring those two things together, something incredible happens. And that's what he has sent us to do. And they want us to give an account for our way of life. It's, it's not just let me tell you what to do. It's let me tell you what's real. That's, that's what proclaiming the gospel is all about. It's not just saying, here's what I think. It's not just saying, here's my truth. It's saying, here's the truth. In faith, this is the truth. This is reality. This is what is real. This is what I'm proclaiming to you. And if, if, if what we claim about Christ isn't backed up by the example of our lives then what we claim about Christ is rendered null and void, guys. Because we can say we love him all day, but if there is nothing compelling, if there is no fruit, 
then why would anybody want what we're saying? If our lives aren't different or better, then why would you want this? And so just a few quick thoughts as I close out. First, you actually have to surrender to the Holy Spirit. This isn't about your power. This is actually about God's power. This is about humbling yourself and saying, I must decrease and he must increase. So you actually have to allow the gospel to shape you. Um, We just recently finished up a class called Gospel Fluency. And it's based on a book written by uh, Jeff Vanderstelt. I'd encourage everybody to read it. And it's just about not just what is the message of the gospel, but it's like, how does the gospel shape our lives, right? What, what, is, what does me having faith in Christ and being changed by Jesus mean for my finances? Like, how does, how does me having faith in Jesus and being shaped by the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, how, well, how does that change the way I parent? How does that change the way that I interact with my neighbors? Like, how does that change the way that I do business? How does that change the way that I live my everyday life? Because most people live dualistically, if we're being honest. Most people have, like, their regular life, and then they go to church on Sunday and have, like, the, this spiritual portion of their week, and then just go back into the rest of their lives. And, and yes, if the gospel is real, if Jesus is real, if Jesus is our only hope, then shouldn't that actually shape and color the whole of our life? Shouldn't that actually speak into everything that we do and who we are? So you have to allow the gospel to shape you, and so we come to know that through studying God's word, through coming together in Christian community, by being discipled, by other people, by being sharpened and shaped by other followers of Jesus Christ, by having gospel community, by engaging in service to each other. Secondly, we have to invite people into our gospel-shaped lives. Like if we're seeking to be somebody who follows Jesus, um, we're not called to this monastic thing. We're not called to sequester ourselves away from the rest of the world. No, no, no. Jesus has sent us to the world. And so we have to invite people into our lives to not just hear what we have to say, but to experience the way that our lives are. Because ultimately, we're not just declaring something. We're saying, I'm different. I'm better. Life is better. My family is better. My marriage is better. Our health is better. All of these things, all of these things are shaped by the gospel of Jesus. And if we don't invite other people into our lives to see some of those things, then how are they going to be intrigued or compelled by that? Paul talks about this to some extent. You know, he says something to the effect of, just look at me. Like, follow my example. Look at my life. I'm not perfect. But if you're asking, well, how do I kind of do this? Well, maybe look at me. Look at the way that I'm trying to live my life. So we have to invite people in, and and then we have to give an honest account as well. So, So when people ask us, what is this? We have to give them Jesus, right? When people ask us, what makes you different? Like, there's something about, you know, what is that? We can't just go, oh, well, you know, and and blow it off. We have to give them Jesus. Like, if there was ever a doorway for for us to go, let me tell you about the hope that's in me. Let me tell you about who Jesus is. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done. 
Now, do you see the difference between this and just like knocking on some random person's door and like wanting to talk about like a Roman road or something? Or going, let me walk you through this track with somebody you don't know who doesn't see your life, doesn't see who you are, right? Now, that's occasionally effective. Occasionally, God uses that. But, but the example of Scripture seems to be that the far more effective mode is not either or, it's both and. It's living a life shaped and changed by Jesus and then being willing to share the truth, the beauty of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, I get the irony this morning that I'm telling you you can't tell people how to live and I'm telling you all how to live. Um, but, um, but let's go to God in prayer this morning. This, this is a challenge for all of us because the challenge is humbling ourselves, letting go of control of our lives, right? Turning over control to the Holy Spirit, um, getting rid of the noise in our life, getting rid of the clutter in our lives so that we can actually hear from God. How many of you actually practice any kind of time of silence, like intentionally? Like the, this classical spiritual discipline of I'm, I'm going to sit and be silent and seek to hear from the Lord. My, my guess is for most of us, myself included, that is very rare. And, and often if it does happen, it's not because you meant for it to. It's because my phone battery died or because the radio in the car doesn't work or something, right? Like God's having to force me into that. But what would it look like for us to cultivate those things so that we might grow closer to him and be more obedient to him? So let's pray this morning and just ask God to maybe reveal in our hearts the areas of our lives where we need to humble ourselves, the areas where we're seeking to have complete control of our lives and yet we need to submit it to him. Let's pray that God would show us the people who he has sent us to, the people that he's called us to invite into our lives, maybe the people who he has called us to verbally declare the glory and the beauty of Christ to. Take just a few moments spend some time with him. Father, seemingly on some level, we should be thankful to live in this part of our country that is still concerned with the things of you and the things of the church. That's still on some level concerned with reading scripture, praying. And yet, Father, we can't help but still see the brokenness around us. And while maybe there are more true followers of you around here than in other parts of our country, may we not lose sight of the fact, Father, that there are still many who do not know you. And that are at least 
around here, it's, it's possible that there are many people who don't know you but would say that they do because it's easier to say that they do. And Father, that may be somebody sitting in this room this morning. Maybe they are experiencing your uh, drawing even now. They're experiencing the fact that you're revealing this to their heart. Maybe they've gone to church their whole life. Maybe they've participated in religious rituals. Maybe they've walked an aisle or they've prayed a prayer. And yet there has never been a point when they've placed their faith in you and received your free gift of grace. Maybe there's never been a point when they've truly tried to humble themselves and give you control. And I pray that right now, this morning, that, that this would be the time. Father, that you would save them through your power. That you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. And that they would be forever changed. It would be clear and obvious Father, we recognize that it's like, it's like impossible for your spirit and your presence to come into a person and there just be no evidence of that at all. When we see the evidence so clearly in the early church, we see this fruit that comes from the indwelling presence of your spirit. But we pray, Father, that you help us to be obedient to you that you would help us to turn over control, Father. Grow us and shape us and change us. Help us to let go of fear and worry and to allow your spirit to manifest joy and peace and patience in our lives, Father. May we invite others in and just live life with them, not as our projects, but as people who are equally made in your image. Who people, people whom you love deeply. And may we seek to model the way of Jesus as we go and as we live life. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we do every week, we have a time of communion this morning. And part of the reason why we do this is because, man, there's it's just such a beautiful reminder of what has taken place in our lives for those of us who are believers. I mean, this is what Jesus has done for us. He gave himself. He poured out his body. He poured out his blood for us. Not because we deserved it, not because we did anything to obtain it, but simply, Scripture says, because He loved us. And isn't that incredible? And so as we come to the table this morning, we come because we want to remember what He has done. He's actually called us to remember what He has done because, I don't know about you, but I I forget very quickly. I start trying to live in my own power but also because as the community of faith, like we need this time of encouragement, 
We need this corporate reminder because we are sent into our city. We aren't sent into our church buildings primarily. We are sent to scatter as his body throughout the place where we live to take his gospel, to live his gospel in the everyday. And so if you're a believer this morning, we want to invite you to this table. You don't have to be a member of our church. Um, But before you come, I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer, connecting with our Father in heaven, thanking him for who he is and what he has done for us through Christ, confessing sin in your own life. Maybe there's somebody in this room even that you need to confess to. Maybe you need to be reconciled to somebody in here. Maybe you need to apologize to somebody in here. Scripture would suggest that before coming to the table, that we're seeking to make things right in our lives and in our relationships. So spend some time in prayer with him and then come this morning as you feel led.
Father, uh, it is your life, uh, it is your Holy Spirit, uh, you are our only hope, you are our great treasure, Father. Uh, forgive us for looking to other things outside of you, Jesus, uh, for hope, for justification, for joy. Uh, Lord, uh, as we move into a time of offering, Lord, I ask that uh, you continue a spirit of worship as we give back to you what is already yours. Lord, I ask as we uh, surrender uh, what, is, what is already yours back to you, Father, that you'll do a work in our hearts, Father. You'll make us cheerful givers. And Lord, I ask uh, that this offering that we give, our, our little gifts that we give here in a moment, Father, go to do amazing things to proclaim your message, to show your message of Jesus Christ to the deepest, darkest parts of our world. Lord, use this offering 
for your glory. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can place your cards, your envelopes in the baskets that are being passed. Um, I got two quick announcements. Uh, we are sending um, kids to camp this week, to Camp Spark. Um, very exciting. Uh, they're going to meet... Um, if you have a, a child, they're going to meet up here at 11 a.m. on Wednesday uh, for their getting in the vans and, and heading out. And so uh, Miss Robin Leger, Ashley Allen, and Justin Renault are going with them. So fast and pray for them um, starting today, please. And so it's going to be a great time for our kids, uh, a great chance to hear a second voice of the good news of the gospel from other people. For your So pray for our kids this week. Pray for those um, uh, leaders as well. And uh, so next 